You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hey, we're going to get into this conversation that we have started. I want to thank Garrett for leading um, just a great word. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to catch up on last week's message, on last week's conversation, uh, please give it, a, give it a listen. Garrett Garrett works hard to purchase his sermons um, from sermons.com forward slash Eastertide forward slash, yeah, so no, really, he, he did a great job discerning what was going on and offering us a word about breathing in, breathing out. Today, we're going to talk about a chosen priesthood in a culture of conflict. Now, the good news for me, for all who are on the other side of the camera, just personally, like as a, as a brother and as somebody who has to do this, is that there's, there's like, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, six people here. Um, so that's, that's kind of nice. Like, I get to look at y'all's face. Yay! Oh, listen. Yes, yes. And they're the charismatic group of the church, um, apparently. But it's, but it's good to see faces, because it's just usually like Sherry and John, and usually Sherry's playing Candy Crush, and John is... Um, playing solitaire, and so it's just kind of like sometimes just me <laughs> up here. <laughs> they don't do it. They pay. They're 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 in it. Um, but it's good. It's good. So all right. So in First Peter chapter two verse nine, that's where our um, that's where our declaration comes from, right? The who we are. Peter draws. I don't know if you know this. Peter draws from the Hebrew scriptures of Exodus nineteen, Hosea two, and Isaiah forty three, and he mashes them. So he does a mashup, he mashes them together, and creates this statement. And this statement is a statement of self-understanding and identity of the church. That's why we say it. So I want a, I want a translation that highlights the Hebrew language that Peter references a little more specifically. And here's how it reads. But you are a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of treasured possession for this purpose that you may declare the wondrous deeds of the one who gave you the calling and summoned you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Now, if you have your YouVersion app, that scripture is there. But it's a beautiful and very much more literal translation of this. So the Apostle Peter, who by this time is an older man, writes to Christians living throughout Asia Minor. They're experiencing terrible and violent persecution. And so he offers up this mashup of scriptures as a statement for a declaration of identity and self-understanding for the church. Cannot, cannot overstate that. We declare this publicly together each week for that reason. And I cannot help but wonder what it would look like if we lived fully into this declaration as one of self-understanding and identity. Like, what would happen if we each dug deep in our own hearts and embraced just the part that says, you are God's chosen people? Everybody say chosen. Chosen people. We are God's chosen people and treasured possession. The Hebrew word there is amsegulah. It's a fascinating language. We are God's chosen people and treasured possession. We are God's chosen beloved. That's what that, if you add that together, chosen and treasured possession, we are God's chosen beloved. Everybody say chosen beloved. Here's my thought. You and I need to recover this truth in our lives. Like individually. 
Like normally when we talk, we understand this is a communal book, a communal faith, so we talk as a community. But today I want to talk to us as a bunch of individuals coming together as a community. We need to recover this truth in our lives. We can only experience this sense of belovedness when we know that we are God's beloved, when we know that we are God's chosen ones. And when the scriptures say to us collectively that we as a community are God's chosen beloved, it impacts us each individually. So I want to spend time talking about this, about taking this scripture personally. And next week we'll talk about it as a community. Today we're going to take it personally. So the word chosen it has purpose and meaning. But in our society, admittedly, we, we may get the impression that if someone is chosen, someone else is rejected. We think of chosenness sometimes opposite of rejection of another. And this is easy to imagine because we live in a society that is committed to competition and comparison, right? And this is not what the word chosen means. This word is not concerned with rejection. Like, for example, when Allison chose me as her husband, the other guys just didn't have a chance. You know what I'm saying? Like, she saw this, and it wasn't about rejecting other people. It was just about fixing her gaze on the wonder and the beauty that is Fred. <laughs> I'm glad she doesn't listen to the first gathering. Beloved, be aware of how society or your upbringing influences how you understand what it means to be chosen, especially when it comes to being God's chosen beloved. To be chosen by God as God's beloved is something completely otherworldly. It's not about rejection. Grasping it's going to require our willingness to do the work of letting go of society's influence to understand that the word chosen suggests a sharp and intense focus on the object of its desire. The word is focusing in on what it sees, not what it doesn't see. When I have been chosen, I have been seen. Someone sees me for who I am and wants to get to know me, to come closer to me, and to love me. When the scriptures say we are God's chosen beloved, it is not a word pointing to favoritism. It is a word that points to relationship, identity, purpose. To be chosen means to be seen, to be loved, to be set aside as uniquely valued and called for a special role to play. So when Peter says we are God's chosen ones, he means that you, you and I have been seen by God from all eternity through the eyes of love as a precious people set aside for divine purpose. For real, y'all. Like, it's almost impossible for me to speak fully to the depth of this word chosen. So I want to encourage you to resist how society frames it for us. You know, we, we often say that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. We, we point to Isaiah 55, 8 that says that. Yes. I say yes to that. The personhood of God is wrapped in divine mystery. The unfathomable depths of God's love reaches so far, if we really sit and contemplate it, that it can lead us into a place of wonder. But in all the mystery and wonder of our eternal God of love, there are still truths that are declared that can be known and some that must simply be accepted 
and claimed. One of these divine mysteries that can be known but must also be accepted and claimed has to do with mine and your chosenness. Long before you were born, beloved, hear this. Long before you were born, you existed in God's heart. Long before you were born, God loved you. Before anyone else loved you, admired you, or believed in you, God did. God sees you with the eyes of infinite love as possessing unfathomable beauty and holding eternal value. And yet we know by the prayer we prayed earlier today, the prayer of lament, that the voices that come from this land of broken promises with all its fear, violence, and hate would have us believe differently. Sadly, sometimes these voices have come from pulpits that speak of God, right? Yet in all this, there is something, something that speaks to us from the depths of our very soul, from our inner being, and stirs within us a longing, a hungering, this lingering hunger for what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to be known. And there's something, I believe, that calls us out in wanting to be known, that thing that just wants to be seen. I believe that's the image of God in us and the voice of God crying out, trying to get our attention, saying, I see you. I see you. I know you best. And I love you most. That is the voice of eternal life. It's the voice of God calling out to us that we are seen, known, valued, loved, that we are chosen. And this can change everything. It can change everything. Because some of us were raised up in a church to believe somehow that fundamental core, the fundamental core of our being is rooted in sin. Like rooted in the fall. That we are sinful, wretched people. We hear it all the time. We're sinners, 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 sinners. And that becomes a statement of identity. Ironically, in trying to be humble, we create a statement of identity that's actually self-deprecating to the image of God within us. Sure, it's been marred and broken by the reign of sin and death. Sure, we're held captive by the reign of sin and death. But that's not the core fundamental of our identity. Before there was original sin, there was original glory. Come on now. Where y'all at? Six people. Like there was original glory before original sin. So the original glory is that we were intended to be in life with God, to be God's chosen, to be his royal priesthood. I like how Rich Villadas says it because he says it better than I do. He says a lot of things better than I do. He says, our core fundamental nature as human beings is not one rooted in sin, but in divine love. And then he says, this means that any project of transformation requires us to name one's belovedness first before attempting to deal with one's sinfulness. You and I can sit here and talk about all the things that are wrong with us. We can look in the mirror and talk about all the things that are wrong with us, and we can start there, and that can be the song we sing. But the song that's actually in our soul is a song of divine love. Our origin story begins with the original glory of the Garden of Eden, not the original sin of the fall. Beloved, we do have to accept and claim. Everybody say claim. We have to claim our chosenness. That's just, just, just real. Like, why do I say we have to claim it? 
Because we have to believe it's true. First, if we accept it, we have to believe it's true. And so that's accepting it. We have to ask, is God really lying to us or is God telling the truth? And then we've got to answer that question. And if we decide that God is telling the truth, then we have to decide if we accept this as a fact, not based upon some unhealthy inner feeling or based upon unhealthy relationship history, but upon God's divine faithfulness that we see in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of God and King Jesus who made God's love known. He made it known. We have to decide if we accept and then we have to claim the belovedness of the love that was made flesh in Jesus. And when we accept it, we claim it. And when we claim it, when I mean claim it, we need to consciously hold it before ourselves each day. Every day we wake up and put on shoes and Pants and shirts, except in Zoom we don't, in the Zoom world we don't. But so every day we wake up and we get ready. And just as much as we have a rhythm of getting ready, why can't we have a rhythm of remembering our belovedness? That's my question. Like how it would be different if you decided when you wake up in the morning that you would sit, put your feet to the floor and remember, I am God's chosen beloved. I am a member of his royal priesthood. You see what I'm doing? Come on now, you see what I'm doing? We do this every week. It should be in our, like muscle memory, right? Like, is that muscle memory? Probably not. But it should be in our hearts. Like the Holy Spirit will remind us. We need practices then. We need practices and other ways to remember our chosenness. Our chosenness. We need others to, who love us to remind us of our chosenness as God's beloved. So first, I want to think about not claiming our chosenness as God's beloved. What happens when we don't? Just so we can embrace that when we do not claim our chosenness as god's beloved we expose ourselves to inner conflict we just expose ourselves to it now if conflict can be understood as the presence of distinct and oppositional perspectives which is a definition we used a few weeks ago then when conflict is viewed in a healthy way it actually can be helpful and revealing right but when it's personal person but when it's inner conflict that may be a different story because what ends up happening is a war is raging raging between what God would have me believe as God's chosen beloved and what my inner outer conflict would have me believe. So now self-rejection or rejection of others begins to rage inside of me. Now my feelings or what I think about myself or what others say about me has more authority than what God feels and thinks about me. I start believing the unhealthy things I feel about myself and in time in time, start acting it out. Start acting it out in unhealthy ways toward myself. My heart, mind, body, and soul are caught up in this inner conflict. It takes my past pains and adds to it with more pain. And then this pain transfers from within me to outside of me toward others. Beloved, listen, please. Pain that is not transformed is pain transferred. Likewise, conflict that is not addressed makes a mess god's declaration of our chosenness as god's beloved can transform our pain by the power of the holy spirit and guide us guide us as we address conflict and submit to the power of the holy spirit beloved this is an ongoing spiritual battle that we fight as children of god this is a battle from within that spells outside of us and into the lives of others so here's what i want to do i want to Told you this would be a practices-based series, so if you have your worship guide and you're going to need your worship guide, turn to page six. You can get it off, the, off online there, and if you don't, then here's what I just want you to do. I want you to draw a triangle right side up, so draw a triangle right side up. I want to offer you a tool that can help you conceptualize this. 
It goes by many names and with variations. It it's it's, it's, it's really originates from the, Car the Carpman's Drama Triangle, which was developed over 40 years ago. It's been adapted in slight ways and called many other names like the Disrespect Triangle or the Trauma Reenactment Triangle, which is actually how I learned it. But for our purposes, I have adapted Dr. Cartman's work, and I want to call it something else with an adaptation. I want to call it the inner-outer conflict triangle because it shows how the inner and outer conflict we experience can, if avoided or ignored, take hold of us and motivate us to act out in ways opposite of our chosenness. It can suffocate our ability to live from the chosenness God has declared over our lives. The triangle can help us understand three roles that we begin to play and describe how we act out toward ourselves and others. The three roles, if you want to write it in there, the V is victim. The victim, that's the one that says, poor me. That's the one that often feels taken advantage of or completely helpless and hopeless. Now, this isn't a person who's legitimately victimized. I want to be clear with us. There are true legitimate victims. Are y'all with me on that? Are y'all with me online? If you are, nod your head so the Spirit can see you. Yeah, I'm not talking about real victims. I'm talking about this sense of victimhood within us that thinks, poor me. That thinks that I have absolutely no control over my situation and will let every experience define me. That's the victim. Then there's the martyr. That's what the M is, the martyr. This one says, let me help you, let me serve you. And they may seem well-intentioned at first, but this can actually be about avoiding guilt or avoiding shame or bypassing responsibility and accountability because eventually the martyr operates out of resentment and go back to the victim. They say things like, I do everything around here. You don't appreciate anything I do. I let you borrow my car and you won't even take me. That reenactment of that inner conflict within myself is the martyr, and the martyr shifts to victim. And then when the martyr shifts to victim and starts acting out toward another in order to shame or to guilt or to manipulate, that then makes me the persecutor. And that's what the P is. The persecutor often blames and shames others and even blames and shames self. Raise your hand if you can see this play out in your own life or you've seen it play out in those you love. Yeah. See, this victim-martyr-persecutor cycle is fluid and it's hellish. It's hard to break. And it can be sparked by the pain we feel or the feeling of just being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the conflicts we are experiencing. I want to repeat that again. This inner-outer conflict triangle, this victim-martyr-persecutor cycle, it is hard to break and can be sparked by the pain we feel or the feelings of overwhelm, that we're being overwhelmed by the conflicts, inner or outer, we are experiencing. In other words, there's something inside of us that is making this triangle cycle seductive and even possible. Sometimes, beloved, sometimes we need to disrupt this cycle we are in. We need a speed bump, something that has the ability to slow us down or pause us and then gives us the opportunity to redirect to a different way of thinking about ourselves. Are you all with me? So I have three words for that, too, which I believe the Holy Spirit can use to pause us but only if we will allow these words to lead us into a dif different 
and deeper way of thinking. Are you with me? But I want to tell you, these words aren't magic. Because we have to receive them, we have to accept them, then we have to what? Claim them. All right? They must be accepted and claimed. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we're gonna, or 1 through 14, we're going to get our words from there. If you'll read with me. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through actually 1 through 11. Paul writes this to Romans, the Roman Christians. He says, so what are we to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us died to sin. So he's writing to Christians. So I want you to say, I died to sin. Say it. So he says, all of us died to sin. Then he, then he asks a rhetorical question. How can we live in it then? Like, how can we live in something we've died in, right? So then he's what he says. This is what he says. You, you may ask, how did I die to sin for it? How did I die to sin? Because I still struggle with sin. I still feel the sin. Well, verse 3. Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. Now, I want you to notice Paul is not using symbolic language there. He's using sacramental language. He is stating it as if it literally happened because in our baptism in the heavenly places, this is what's taking place. When Nico Florakis was baptized, we saw him get into water and come out of water. But with the eyes of faith, we saw him buried in a tomb with Jesus and raised from the dead with Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to say. Verse 5, if we were united together in death like his, we will also be united together in a resurrection like his. This is what we know. Verse 6, the person that we used to be was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. That way we wouldn't be captive or slaves to sin anymore because a person who has died has been freed from sin's what? Power. We've been freed from sin's power. But if we died with Christ, we have faith that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. In the same way, now I want to pause for a minute. I'm going to go longer than 23 minutes today, so we just have to make our peace with that, I hope. Because this, this text preaches. I want you to look at that again. So Paul says, I mean, we, none of us would deny with the lens of faith that, that death no longer has power over Jesus, right? We, we, we're in Eastertide. He was raised from the dead. So Paul says, hey, look, the death Jesus died and the resurrection Jesus raised is your death and resurrection too. But we don't often believe that. We need a liberation of consciousness. He died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. Verse 11, in the same way, you also should consider yourself dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. So what are the three words I want to give us? What are the three words? Here are the three words. You ready? Remember your baptism. Those are the three words. Remembering our baptism can disrupt the cycle of the inner outer conflict triangle. Triangle. Remembering our baptism can turn our attention back toward our chosenness as God's beloved. I believe that's what it, we. I believe that's what we. What we learn in Romans six is the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write the text, especially verse eleven, where it says, "In the same way, 
you should also consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The Greek word translated consider there in our English language, it's actually an economic term. It could be translated take inventory or take account. In other words, Paul is saying to us, I want you to stop, I want you to look, I want you to accept it's there, and I want you to think about it as a fact. It is what it is. You may not feel dead to sin, but you are. Your inner conflict may say things to you that are reflective of the reign of sin and death. Things like you aren't enough. You are worthless. It's your fault. You are your worst decision. You aren't faithful. You aren't lovable. You aren't capable. Whatever. But your baptism says otherwise. Because of what God says about your baptism. See, we don't get to describe the meaning to baptism. I know churches like to try and give meaning to the baptism. We don't get to do that. Not that Paul gave the meaning. The Holy Spirit gave the meaning. This isn't the only text, by the way. Your baptism says otherwise because of what God says about your baptism. Our baptism points to God's work. We're just receiving. God's finished, complete, life-giving, now and forever changing declaration that we, that you, that me, are God's chosen beloved. So I want to give you another triangle, and I call it the baptism triangle. You know what's funny is I like shapes, but I failed geometry in high school and had to take it twice. I just want to make that clear. Maybe that's why I love shapes, because I actually failed the class. Mostly because I didn't show up. If there are teenagers on the, on the do not be like me. Do not, <laughs> do not be like me. Ian, don't be like me. I want to give you another triangle, call it the baptism triangle. Except I want to have you draw it upside down. So draw it upside down. And this three-shotted shape, this, this baptism triangle, I think can help us remember three historical and unchangeable declarations of our faith that are bigger than our feelings. Three sides, three declarations. You ready? Declaration one, Christ died for us. Because he did. That's an unchangeable historical fact that nobody can undo. Are you with me? Come on, are y'all with me? Y'all can't undo it, I can't undo it, nobody can undo it, not even hell itself can undo that. It's a bloodstained cross that says Christ died for us. Number two, second side, Christ has risen for us. We've already declared that, right? right? It's Easter. And then number three, Christ's liberating presence. Look at verse six of Romans. This is what we know. The person that we used to be was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. That way we wouldn't be slaves of sin anymore no, anymore because a person who has died has been freed from sin's power, Christ's liberating presence. That's the three-sided, upside-down triangle. And what I'd like for you to do is play the game with me and place the baptism triangle on top of the inner outer conflict triangle and create this six-sided shape. Can all the geometry lovers out there get excited? We're going to create a hexagram. That also looks a lot like the Star of David. And I'm calling this the Star of God's Chosen Beloved. And here's why. Because when you put that baptism triangle on top of the inner conflict triangle, in light of these three declarations, three more declarations surface. You ready? They're very similar. So if you're looking at, if you're looking at it, and you put it together on page seven in the worship guide, now the where it says Christ's death, the top left hand corner, you go to the top point, it's died with Christ. Beloved, you died with Christ because of Christ's death for us. That's what your baptism. 
in baptism, my faith, I died with Christ. The next corner, Christ's resurrection. And then the next corner, what do you think it would be? In baptism by faith, I have been what? Raised with Christ. And then the bottom point, Christ's liberating presence, and then move around to the next point. In baptism by faith, Christ has what? Liberated me into God's life. See, now the victim and the martyr and the persecutor are replaced. The victim's dead. The martyr's been raised. The persecutor has been liberated. Beloved, if you wrote this down, if you went to the store and got a tattoo, (laughs) yeah, I just said it, and put this somewhere in your face, somewhere in front of your eyes, when you are feeling overwhelmed by conflict of any kind, avoid the conflict triangle in three words. What are they? Remember your baptism. Give your loved ones and good friends permission to remind you of your baptism. And when you hear these words, pause and consider what it means. Write it down. Say it aloud. Go to Romans 6 and read it or take time and draw out the six-sided symbol. Remember, there are six points you have to remember. Because Christ died for us, I died with Christ. Because Christ raised for us, I was raised with Christ. Because Christ liberated me from sin's claims, I have been liberated into God's life. See, it's not hard. We just have to rehearse it. And we move forward. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.